Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I don't know any more difficult subject to speak on than the one that we will talk about tonight. I don't know any preacher or any teacher that gets any joy out of talking about hell. In fact, anybody that gets joy out of talking about it has not had their heart broken by the thought of it. This is a message that I have approached with a great deal of fear and reverence, asking the Lord to speak to me, to remind me that men are either lost or saved, heaven-bound or hell-bound. The book of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 says, But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Nobody believes in hell anymore. I don't know that I've ever in all my life been to a funeral where the preacher was honest enough to say, we know by this person's life that they are in hell today. We put more people in heaven that never got there because we're scared we're going to offend when the truth of the matter is, if we don't start telling the truth about hell, we're sending more people there, not getting people out of it. Martin Marty said, hell disappeared and no one noticed. When's the last time you heard a sermon? I'm not talking about a part of a sermon. When's the last time you heard a sermon on hell? When's the last time you sat in a Sunday school class that was dominated by the theme of what happens to people when they die without a relationship with Jesus Christ? Newsweek magazine recently said, hell is today's theology's H word, a subject to trite for serious scholarship. Gordon Kaufman of the Harvard Divinity School said, I don't think there can be any future for heaven and hell. Erwin Lutzer says that unbelievers disbelieve it, most Christians ignore it, and hell seems to be out of step with the times. And yet we know more about hell than we do about almost any other subject, and what we know about it came from Jesus. People try to paint Jesus as this meek and lowly and wimpish and effeminate person who walked the face of the earth and tried not to offend anybody and tried not to hurt anybody's feelings and wasn't a man's man, and Jesus said more about hell than anybody ever did. Jesus told us from his loving lips what would happen to those who reject his love, those who spurn and turn their back. And you see, the reality of God's wrath is just as much a part of the biblical revelation as the reality of his grace. Grace and wrath are two sides of the same coin. Anytime you see, if you want to understand how to balance doctrine in the scriptures, you understand that for every doctrine, there is a doctrine on the other side of it. There is God's grace and there is God's wrath. 
There can no be, be no grace without wrath, and there cannot be wrath without grace. There can't be a heaven without a hell, and there can't be a hell without a heaven. There can't be opposite doctrines that do not relate to each other. They have to relate. And doctrine is two sides of the same coin, and any time that coin gets out of balance, we lose a doctrinal truth in the church. The doctrine of hell is one that we have ignored. And quite honestly, we are overwhelmed with guilt of two great sins. Sin number one is we live as if hell is not real. We live as if hell is not real. Sin number two, we approach evangelism as if it were an option. We approach evangelism and missions as if it were an option. But if hell is real, and if people die and spend eternity in heaven or hell, then we cannot approach evangelism as an option. You see, we believe in hell in our minds. Up here we say, yes, there is a hell, but we deny it sometimes in our priorities. So the first thing I want you to see tonight is the arguments against a literal hell. I believe that there is a literal heaven as described in the Bible and that there is a literal hell as described in the Bible. The first argument is this. Some people have a difficulty reconciling the judgment of God and the love of God. The judgment of God and the love of God, but the the Bible doesn't have any problem reconciling those two. The Bible doesn't have any problem reconciling that whosoever will may come, and yet there are the elect chosen before the foundation of the earth. The Bible doesn't have the problems we have. You see, the Son and the Scriptures are not in conflict here. The judgment of God and the love of God. Thomas Brooks said, The damned shall live as long in hell as God himself lives in heaven. One of the reasons people have a problem with hell is because they do not see how a loving God could send anybody to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to send themselves there by rejecting his son, by rejecting the free offer of Jesus Christ. Now, now here's the problem. Kind of stay with me for a second. Our problem with an eternal hell and separation from God is somehow, as we look out as our friends and at our family members who are lost, and they're good people, and they're nice people, and they're a lot of just good old boys, you know? I mean, they're just a good old boy. He's a nice guy, you know? Never hurt his mama, I mean, was nice. Ate fried chicken all the time, I mean, just a good old boy. You know, he's, he's a little rough around the edges, but he's just a good old boy. We just don't see how a loving God can allow that to happen. You see, we don't think the punishment fits the crime. We think, you know, the guy ought to get off with a little, you know, hand slap, don't do that. Now you're going to spend a few years down here, then we're going to straighten all this out. Somehow for us, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You see, it's amazing. Most of us in this room would be considered uh, conservatives theologically and probably conservatives politically, and we have a problem with liberals because they're soft on crime. I think a greater problem is conservatives who are soft on the doctrine of hell. That we don't realize that it is a crime against a holy God. Whether your sin is an acceptable sin or whether your sin is an unacceptable sin. 
that the punishment and the crime do fit. We have a problem with good people, people that we know that are basically nice and basically moral. In fact, we look at some people like that and say, you know what, they're better than some people I know inside the church. That doesn't mean everybody in the church is saved. Uh, they seem like good folks. I mean, it, it almost sounds like people are getting the death penalty for a parking ticket. To say that there is a judgment of God that means a person will spend eternity in hell. Now, everybody you know, everybody you will ever meet will spend eternity one of two places, heaven or hell. They're not going to be caught in limbo somewhere in between. They're going to be one of two places. From the moment they are pronounced dead or die in this life, they spend eternity in one of two places. C.H. Spurgeon said, It will be held to a man to have his own voluntary choice confirmed and made unchangeable. Now, the Scripture tells us that God is a just God. And in any system of justice, there have to be two factors. One is reward and the other is punishment. If you're going to have a system of justice, you have to have reward and punishment. If you eliminate reward or punishment, you eliminate justice. There is no justice anymore. So you have to have reward and punishment. The laws of this land are based on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to us by God. They tell us that there are rights and wrongs, that there is reward and there is punishment. The Scriptures tell us that there are rewards and there are punishments. And with that comes justice. Now let me ask you to turn to Psalms 9 and verse 16. <clears throat> Psalms 9 and verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his hands, his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. Now we say, now, I, I just still don't, I, I cannot reconcile the judgment of God and the love of God. Because what do we do about those people out there in some land that have never heard the gospel. How can a loving God let those people go to hell? Romans 1 is the answer to that question. That God has revealed himself in creation and he has given man light to respond to. We say, well, but, you know, what if he doesn't know? What if he doesn't hear? What about those people that have never heard the gospel? No man has ever lived up to the level of his own consciousness of what is right and wrong. It does not matter what culture, what nation, what part of the world he is from, there is not a man alive because we are depraved. There is not a man alive that has ever lived up totally, completely, 100% of the time to everything he knew that was right and wrong. And the sins, therefore, of our lives accuse us. I, I, I like what Ron Dunn says about that when in Romans chapter 1. He says, trot out your heathen. Trot out your heathen that's responded to every evidence of God that they've seen in creation around them. 
Show me the person that has responded with all their heart to what they know about God, and I'll show you the person that God has given more light to. You see, God's judgment and God's love do balance out, but there's a second problem, and that is the growing acceptance of false teaching that makes the doctrine of hell unacceptable. By the way, I read an interesting article about a week or so ago that one of the strongest cult groups in this country was the cult group founded by Herbert W. Armstrong. They believed in annihilation, that there would not be any existence. Once you die, if you're in hell, you're annihilated, you're burned up in the fire, and it's over. Do you know that the founder of that group died? His son split off, had a lot of different things going on wrong in his life, but the new head of that church has come out and confessed the heresy of that church. Their denial of basic biblical doctrines and has said this church will now become a Bible-believing church and we will follow the teachings of Scripture and they have denied almost all the teachings of their founder. Now they've had tens of thousands of people leave that group because they were more committed to the teachings of a man than the study of Scripture. And you see the acceptance of false teaching, reincarnation. I mean, Shirley MacLaine has done more for reincarnation than anybody. I personally think when she comes back, she's coming back as a toaster. The New Age movement, people who channel, people who talk to the dead. I mean, you've got a hodgepodge out there of Hinduism and Buddhism and a little mix of Dante's Inferno and a little thrown in Milton's Paradise Lost and you get just enough theology for people to be dangerous. By the way, 25% of Americans now believe in reincarnation. Less than 5% 30 years ago believed in reincarnation. You know why we believe in reincarnation? Then I don't have to be accountable for my life. I get a do-over. I get, I get a do-over. If I, if I mess up in this life, I can come back as a butterfly and work my way back until I get it all right. You see, Americans are accepting false teachings that make them comfortable with their sin and with their rebellion against God, but that does not change the fact that God is God and there is a heaven and there is a hell. And by the way, if you notice that all these near-death experiences and all these out-of-body experiences and all these people who they die and they floated above their body and they saw this great light and all this, have you ever noticed that none of those people see hell? I think it's because Satan has blinded their eyes to see where they're headed, many of them, and deceived them into accepting some light and not the light. You see, if you don't see your sin and where it's taking you, you don't care about how you live. And so the scriptures stand in direct opposition to the false teaching. Now, there are two ways that people try to skirt around it. This is just kind of a, a broad category of two possible ways that false teachings come. First of all, it's universalism, that all humanity is going to be saved in the end. Just for the record, I have asked Tom Pollock to check out what we give to the cooperative program and that we would begin to not give any more money to Mercer University because their president has come out with a book on the gospel that teaches universalism. 
And I don't believe our money ought to go anywhere where the head of an organization believes that everybody's going to be saved in the end and God loves too many people to send anybody to hell. It just violates the once-for-all delivered faith that Jude talks about. Universalism is a belief, hey, don't worry about it. So if they don't get saved in this life, they're all going to get saved in the end. God's going to work it all out, and everybody's going to be saved, and everybody's going to be in heaven in the sweet by and by. Secondly, annihilation. Annihilation. The righteous will live forever, but the wicked will be judged and then annihilated. Both of those are theological cop-outs. Now, when the Scripture says that one will be destroyed, that word is used regarding punishment in the Gospels. And when the word destroyed is used, it does not mean annihilation or to pass out of existence. It means to be delivered up to eternal misery. When a person is destroyed in the Scripture, it means that they are delivered up to eternal misery. Now, Revelation 14 and verse 10 says... He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and who re whoever receives the mark of his name. Secondly, let's talk about the names of hell. Let's just go through this very quickly. I think they're already there in your note. First of all, the lake of fire. It's called a lake of fire. What kind of fire is it? I don't know, but it never burns out. Secondly, it's called Sheol. Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, or the grave. This is the most common word in the Old Testament used for hell. The King James translates it hell 31 times and the pit three times. The Hebrew word is Sheol. The Greek word is Hades. Third word, Hades. Used in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man who went to Hades and was tormented in the flames. We know that in Hades, according to Luke chapter 16, that there is burning and separation and conviction by memories and thirst and stench. The rich man could look across and see where the saved were located. Number four, the word Gehenna. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, and Jesus used it 11 of those 12 times. Jesus would look out on the valley of Hinnom, where false worship of the god Molech had taken place. Molech was the god of the golden calf, and he had a head like a bull, and he had a hollowed-out stomach, and a fire would burn in his stomach, and a child would be sacrificed on his outstretched arms. The Valley of Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom would now be in the time of Christ a garbage dump where all the refuse and dead bodies and dead animals were thrown into that valley and there was a constant burning and a constant stench. And as a visible illustration of what hell would be like, Jesus would walk around Jerusalem and walk around those mountains and point and say, it's like Gehenna. There's a stench, there's an odor, there's death there, there's sorrow there, there's disease and decay there. Gehenna. The time of Jesus, it was nothing more than a garbage dump. Number five, it is called the second death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14 and chapter 21 and verse 8 speaks of separation, not the cessation of existence, but separation. Number six, 
it is spoken of as eternal retribution or eternal punishment. Eternal retribution or eternal punishment. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. All these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. It is eternal punishment. It is duration without end. Let me tell you what I think the worst part of hell is. Knowing it never ends. It's not just knowing that heaven is on the other side and you could have gone there. It's knowing that it never ends is the worst part of it. Let's talk about the circumstances in hell. They're listed for you, so let me just cover them quickly. Matthew 8, 12, it is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke 16, 23, it is a place where people scream for mercy. Mark chapter 9 tells us it is a place of unquenchable fire. Revelation chapter 9 says, although it is a place of unquenchable fire, it is also a place of total darkness. Mark chapter 3 says it's a place of eternal damnation where there is no escape and no pardon. Revelation chapter 14 says it's a place where God's wrath is poured out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us it is a place of everlasting destruction. Let's talk about the citizens of hell. First of all, Satan. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. The Antichrist will be condemned to hell. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. The false prophet will be there. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. The demons will be cast into hell. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Judas will be in hell. Acts chapter 1 and verse 25. By the way, I had an interesting discussion when I was in, in Ada. I had a guy in the church who believed that Judas was saved. I never could get him to show me the Bible verse that told him that, but he said, I, I, ju I just think Judas got saved before he killed himself. I said, well, I, I don't find anything in the Bible. My, my Bible says that Judas is in hell. Number six, unsaved sinners. Revelation chapter 21, chapter 20, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, if you look now at Luke chapter 16, I want us to close by looking at this passage. The Pharisees are scoffing Jesus. The word scoff means that they are turning up their nose at him. And there are a lot of people who will turn up their nose at this truth. In fact, I would encourage you, not because we're trying to sell tapes, but I would encourage you, if you know somebody that doesn't know Christ, to get them a copy of the tape on heaven and a copy of the tape on hell and ask them if you can come back and talk to them in a week and say, now, where do you want to go? Because you're going to end up in one of two places. People will turn their nose up and say, I don't believe that there is a hell. What I believe doesn't change what God's Word says. God's Word says that there is such a place. And Luke chapter 16, there is no indication that Jesus was telling a parable. He told it as a true story, as an actual fact with actual people who were actually in heaven in the bosom of Abraham and actually in hell. And the man in hell is in conscious torment. He is aware of what's going on and he is tormented. Now pick up, if you would, at verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. 
Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed. That's a very important word. It's not going to change. There's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Very important. Nobody can go from heaven to hell and nobody can go from hell to heaven. There's a chasm fixed. Now pick up in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. First of all, hell is a place of torment. The rich man was tormented in two ways. First of all, he wanted water to cool his tongue. And we, you know, there's an old song about that, dip your finger in the water, come and cool my thirst for I'm tormented in the flame. But I think there's a greater torment. He is tormented by the fact that if something doesn't happen in his brother's life, they're going to join him there. His greater torment, he doesn't focus once he gets that out of the way on Lazarus dipping his finger in the water. What he focuses on is somebody has got to go and tell my brothers about hell. It is a place of torment. Now the word torment is used four times in the scripture. It means definite pain. It is a word used in the judgments of God for the unrepentant world, according to Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 11, and Revelation chapter 20. Matthew Henry said, Those who love darkness rather than light shall have their doom accordingly. Jonathan Edwards wrote that after a million ages, God will not be any more inclined to release those in hell than he was at the very first moment. What's the torment in hell like? What are the flames like? What's the darkness like? I don't know, but it's so bad, I don't think we can imagine it. It is a place of torment. Secondly, it is a place of separation. There's a great chasm or a gulf or a ravine that cannot be crossed and it cannot be bridged. C.H. Spurgeon said, If there be one thing in hell worse than another, it will be seeing the saints in heaven. Husband, there is your wife in heaven and you are among the damned. And do you see your father? Your child is before the throne, and you, accursed of God and man, are in hell. I don't know if we will witness those things. There seems to be an indication in Luke chapter 16 that 
that the rich man could see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, but Lazarus never responds. He never speaks back. He never says anything. He never points his finger at him and says, well, you know, you got yours now because I had to live that way in the first life. There's no response from Lazarus. I don't know if we will be able to see and understand and know what's going on in hell, but I do know this. In the presence of God, we will say that God is a just God and everyone in hell deserved to be there. Now, it doesn't matter what they did, how good they were. The Scripture says our righteousness is as filthy rags. You and I cannot be good enough to get to heaven. You can give all your money away. You can give all your time away. You can be moral. You can be uh, pure as far as this world counts pure. But apart from Jesus Christ, it's going to be a place of separation and a place of torment. Now, notice, in this post-death experience, both men are eternally fixed by decisions that they made before they died. Those decisions fix them, set them, for all eternity, and it is impossible for either one of them to cross over. Number three, it is a place of consciousness. The rich man asked Lazarus to let uh, Abraham to let Lazarus return to his house and warn his brothers. Now, I want you to notice something, and young people, you need to catch this one real quickly, and anybody else that's got any friends like this, you need to catch this one. Notice that the man is not looking for company in hell. He is not saying anything about, well, if they don't make it, at least it's going to be one big New Year's Eve party down here. I've had young people look at me in the face and say, hey, I don't care if I go to hell, it's just one big keg party. Not according to the rich man. He is alone. He is a conscious of his situation. He is separated. He is tormented. And he says, I don't care what else you do, but tell somebody to go tell my brothers they don't need to be here kind of eliminates the idea of hell being a place where you party all night, doesn't it? He says, don't let my brothers come here. I'm convinced of this based on this passage. There are no friendships in hell. Every man is alone because in darkness you can't see anyone else. We are alone in our torment. There's no one to share our sorrow. There's no one to share our grief. There's nobody. We don't all stand around in a huddle in, in hell and everybody says, well, you know, at least we're all here together. We're all kind of going through the same misery and the same suffering. At least we've got each other down here, not according to what the Bible says. People suffer for all eternity without Christ and without any hope without any encouragement. Fourthly, it is an eternal place. It is an eternal place. I don't know how to explain this except to say the rich man was there and he is still there. And he is still thirsty. The only thing that has changed is his five brothers are either in heaven or hell. That's all that's changed. How long is eternal eternity? Well, let's just try to get an image. I was at the beach this week, and I just imagine, let's take a bird and have that bird go down to every beach in this world and pick up one grain of sand and fly as fast as he can from the earth to the moon 
and deposit that one grain of sand and fly back and get another grain of sand and fly to the moon and put it on the moon and fly back. By the time that bird had emptied all the beaches of the world of sand, eternity would have just begun. That's how long. It is beyond what we can even imagine. We can't imagine it in heaven. What's it going to be like to spend time endless with God? Nor can we imagine what it will be like in hell for people to be without Christ. Finally, it is a place that you get to by doing nothing. How do you get to hell? You don't have to do one thing. By the way, how do you get to heaven? Jesus has already done it for you. C.S. Lewis told of walking by a gravestone in England. On that gravestone was written this inscription, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. And C.S. Lewis said, I'll bet he wishes that were so. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. I'll bet he wishes that were so. Abraham explained to the rich man that his five brothers must hear the word of God and must respond to the word of God. He said, well, if somebody would come back from the dead, then they would respond. He said, they wouldn't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. By the way, somebody did come back from the dead. His name is Jesus Christ. Historians tell us that Jesus Christ had an undeniable physical resurrection. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ had an undeniable physical resurrection. He came, he lived a sinless life, he died on the cross, he shed his blood for our sin, he rose from the grave so that you and I would never have to spend eternity in hell. Nobody has to go there. What must a person do to go from hell to heaven? Turn to Jesus Christ. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't pray your way out of it. You can't give your way out of it. You can't be good enough to get out of it. There's only one way, and that way is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people. Now listen very carefully, and then we're through. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. You know, folks, God loved you enough that he gave his only son. Because you believed in him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. But you know, you and I have neighbors. We have family. We have friends. We have folks we work with. And we're embarrassed to tell them what we believe. And we're uncomfortable confronting them with the gospel. We're a little timid when it comes to talking about this, but if we ever get a picture of where they're headed without Christ, we'll be a little more aggressive. Can we force somebody to go to heaven? Nope. That's our choice. 
We choose heaven. We choose hell. But we need to be out there giving people the choice and telling them you don't have to go there. One of the great missionaries of another era said this, some folks wish to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop one mile from hell. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.